next week's episode of Noon, I'm thrilled to introduce you to a friend of mine, Brett, an accomplished professional with a diverse and impactful journey. Brett's path has taken him through various healthcare roles, from nursing in the ER to the cath lab and even into teaching. Currently working as a flight nurse, he is dedicated to serving and helping his community in new ways. Join us for this engaging and insightful discussion as Brett unfolds his journey, offers valuable insights from his varied roles in medicine, and emphasizes the significance of preventative care. Let's get started. All right, Brett, thank you so much for joining us today on the Noon Podcast. I appreciate you coming out today. Glad to be here. I would love to get an introduction. Sure. Um, So my name is Brett Sires. I am a registered nurse, and I've been in the medical field for about 22 years. Started as an EMTB and liked it, but I wanted a little more money than the $7 an hour they were paying me. So I went back to nursing school and finished with my RN and started working ER, did ER for about seven years or so, and it was awesome, but I wanted something a little more, so I went to cath lab, did that for about seven years, and then I taught for the last several years, which was good, but a desk job is only great for a little while, and then you get bored, so I decided to take the next step, which was flight nursing, which is how I met you, and it's been really rewarding, really fulfilling, and I love it, you know, so it's the it's the thing to do for now. I did go back to school and I got my bachelor's, so I do have a degree. And I'm considering getting another degree, but, man, I just get so tired of school. <laughs> yeah. I know. <laughs> so, um, but nursing, great field. I really enjoyed it. And, you know, it's it's good to be back in the EMS world, and that's how I started. And, uh, you know, it, we can make a difference in our field. Oh, no, we we definitely can. And I don't mean, I, well, I'm going to age you a little bit because you talked about making oh, $7 an hour as an EMT. I don't even think when I started as an EMT, I was making 7 I want to say I was at like eight fifty or $9 an oh. hour. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, that would have been, I guess, early 2000s. This one that was. So like 2001, maybe I finished. It was an eight-week course in the summer. And I passed and got a job and um, we got like two calls a month at the station that I was working at, but they had a pool table. So I got oh. really good at playing pool. <laughs> That's important. You know, <laughs> it, it is. It was something I, miss to do. The, I miss the good old days when we, you know, only had a couple of calls, right. Uh, you know, a shift. When I started here at this flight job that we're working at, we, we would have like one call in a tour. So in a full seven days, we'd have one flight. Wow. And now we're at like <laughs> two to three calls per shift, you know? Per so shift, yeah, absolutely. Averaging 10 to, 10 to 15 hours or 10 to 15 flights per tour now, which is, is pretty nuts considering um, it's only been a few years, you know? That's awesome, though. It is. It's great for the company. It's growing and getting really big. Um, I know you said that this was the next step kind of in your career, but what really prompted you to move into the flight nursing career? Well, as far as, as far as I look at it, there's kind of tiers of importance, I would say, you know, and from a nurse perspective, the not so great jobs would be like a assisted living or like a nursing home or something like that. And the jobs that people typically aim for, like their high goals are going to be either your ICUs or your procedural areas and kind of the, the upper echelon of these is going to be flight nursing. You know, it's, it's kind of a step above. So for me, this is a goal that I've always had. 
and to be able to achieve it is fun for me. You know, I think it's awesome to be part of something that can really change the outcome for a patient. You know, if, if you say, oh, I'm a flight nurse, there carries a lot of carries a lot of weight behind it, if you will. You know, flight paramedics and flight nurses, they're, they are typically very sharp, very good at their job and are the experts. And I'm, I'm so happy to be a part of this. And not that I'm any of those things, but I'm learning from my friends and from my coworkers like yourself um, how to be better at this job and take this care and time with the patients to genuinely affect their outcome for the better. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great response. The I would agree the flight capacity is kind of an end goal for a lot of people as a, the highest standard of care that we can do. You know what I mean? I think that th- there's been a lot of changes in the last few years where things have changed and nurses and paramedics are getting in to be in higher positions, you know, where they're having almost like mid-level or mid-care mid-level provider services, you know, without having to go through NP or PA. Um, I think there's just such a shortage that we're seeing a good movement for nurses and paramedics to move into those positions, which is really cool. Do you have your um, CFRN or your CEN or? No, we're, we're working on those. At one point I did have my CEN, but um, they require some hours at the bedside. And when I took the office job, I wasn't able to maintain those hours. So you've got to have, I think for the CEN, you got to have a thousand hours of bedside practice, which is half time. And I didn't have anywhere close to that. So I've, I've always kind of stayed PRN in the cath lab slash ICU, but not enough to maintain that credit, the credentials for that. So no, I don't have an advanced certification yet. We are working on the CFRN, but it's really hard. <laughs> and, it is very and, hard. Uh, yes, it's very hard, and and I'm I'm working on it. It is a goal for this year. So I've got, you know, about uh, six months left, five months left, to get it in 23. Yeah, if, you, if you need help studying, let me know, man. The, I know the FPC Absolutely. and the CFRN are pretty pretty close, and the FPC was no joke. I've talked about it a couple times. It's it's a hard test, and the CFRN is going to be a hard test too. I'm sure it is. <laughs> you have a lot of really good resources at our company, though, which is good. So you mentioned um, working in the cath lab, which is a really cool and really unique experience, I think. So I've always been really interested in, in the cardiac side of what we do and have looked into working in a, in a cath lab for some time now. Um, the position just never opened up to me. But what do you think and w- what are you doing when you're working in the cath lab? Sure. So... I want to give about a, a kind of a 30 second background before I say, you know, kind of what we do in the cath lab. I want to do why I do the cath lab. The short answer to why I even got in the medical field was my father passed away when I was 19. I was doing construction, which wasn't much fun in Texas because it's even right now, I think it's 108 degrees outside. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> doing construction in the summer, like we were doing framing, which was fine. But then dad passed and it rocked my world. I mean, like he was my hero, you know, and he died of a heart attack. So, I wanted to fix heart attacks. That was my primary goal when we set out. And my goal was just to save one person from losing their dad. My dad ran four miles every single day that I remember. He was extremely fit. And he died when he was 57. So it really affected me, and I I wanted to prevent that from happening to other people. So I've been chasing that patient my entire career. I started with EMS, which was good, but we were transporting. So I was like, okay, let's go to the ER. So I went to the ER. And that was good, but we were just packaging 
these cardiac patients and sending them where? To the cath lab. It's like, okay, let's do cath lab. So I went to cath lab to fix heart attacks. And we did. We fixed a bunch of them. And it was a good job. I really enjoyed it. The thing I didn't like about it was the call because you get paid like two bucks an hour to give up your entire weekend. And it was about every third weekend you'd give up. So what we did, we were a chest pain center, which is a joint commission accreditation. You have to jump through a bunch of specialized hoops in order to get that accreditation, which means more recognition, more money, more resources, um, more attraction to the cardiac specialists. So like um, your cardiac nurses want to work at a cardiac hospital. Your physicians want to work at a chest pain center. They get a lot of uh, more pay for working at these specialized facilities. So it's, it's, a, it's a great place to work that has that kind of certification. It's very similar to like a, uh, like a magnet recognition or there's several different certifications you can get for being an awesome place to work. And if you're at your chest pain center, you know that that place has it together. So we were the community resource um, here in North Texas for the area that I lived in. It had about 150,000 people in the county, and we were the lead hospital for that county. So things that we did there, primarily, we were a STEMI center. So STEMI, you know, is a heart attack. And patients would come in that had some sort of either a slow decline in function or, you know, they get to where they just can't even walk to the mailbox anymore. So we would go in and do some diagnostic work on them and see if there was some sort of blockages that we could fix. That was 90% of what we did. 10% was probably the STEMIs. So a STEMI comes in, we, we clear our schedule to get a STEMI on the tape. And we, we use, it's an x-ray machine, but it takes serial pictures. So it's like if you hold down the speed button on your iPhone or whatever kind of camera you've got that clicks real fast, that's how we take those images. So it's very, very fast and we shoot in some dye and you can see areas of collapse or um, restriction. And then we can put a little balloon in there, inflate those, and hopefully restore some blood flow. So when a STEMI comes in, one of the sayings that we have is time is muscle. And we've got some standards that we have to meet. Usually it's door to balloon. So the door meaning as soon as EMS crosses the threshold into the building, we have 60 minutes to deploy a device. And there's several different devices we can use, but that's, that's booking it pretty fast. Because it really takes, you know, if, if we have a patient that comes in from the floor, it takes about an hour just to get them prepped and ready for the physician to come in and start his thing. So to get it from the door to device deployment in an hour is booking it. So we, we have to do it very, very fast. The sooner we can get in there, the sooner that we can fix the problem and the better outcome we're going to have. And it's also pretty risky because, as you know, the heart is very temperamental and it does not like it when you block off blood flow to it. So you block off blood flow, you've got realistically maybe four to six hours before that cardiac muscle is no longer viable. And if it doesn't beat, you lose function. So an, a normal ejection fraction, that's, that's how much the heart can squeeze, is somewhere around 50%. And if you lose about a third of that, I mean, you're, you're pumping on 20 to 30%. And, you know, you get down 5 to 15% ejection fraction, and that's where you start having a lot of dysrhythmias. Can't walk from here to the kitchen without losing your breath. Severe loss of function. Um, your, your activities of daily living are affected. I mean, you can't enjoy anything but TV, basically, at that point. Sit in the chair because you have no reserve. It takes everything you've got just to get up 
So the faster we are, the better outcome they have, the more they can have a, a normal life. And it's really cool to have somebody come in and, I mean, they're clutching their chest. It's, you know, stereotypical, oh, I'm dying kind of thing. And we manage their pain. We get a device in. We deploy whatever it is. And we could go into detail if you want, but basically we open it is the short of it. Mm -hmm. And then they walk out of there and they were at death's door when they came in. And they walk out of the hospital three days later with a new outlook on life. And being a part of that with that highly specialized team that is extremely well-trained and everybody functions well, and we have that excellent outcome, that is really cool to be a part of. That is really cool. And as a nurse in that position, what was your role? So we had, we had rotating roles. So one of the things that we do is bill. Um, and, and we have to bill because the like an average cath lab room, uh, you're looking at somewhere around $10 million for equipment just equipment that does not include stents so in order to have that stuff of course we got to pay for it and then you got a five-man team so we got to pay for that so the billing part of it is when i say billing i really mean charting so we record the procedure we record what we do we record every device that we use we record who is on it you've got a team of five people so they're they're either um some sort of medical background typically a nurse and a rad tech a radiological technician and they run the what we call the CRN, which is that it's like an x-ray machine, but you got to do it quick. So the team of five people, and they all cost a lot. I mean, the average heart attack that comes in is around on the low side, mid-100s. And that's if we just do one little bitty stent and it goes up from there. I mean, that's that's the cost. I mean, that's we don't make a whole lot of money on that. So one of the positions is charting, so the recorder. So we record what we do. That's what we submit to insurance. A second position that a nurse can do is the circulator, and that's probably the, the primary position that most cath labs use for nursing. And in that role, you're in charge of the patient. So the doc's down basically at the right side of the groin, manipulating wires and tubes and access to the femoral artery. But the nurse monitors vital signs, gives medications, controls airway, any sort of medications that we need to affect the heart. So we've got something that can speed it up or slow it down or increase the contractility of it. We also give medications that can help thin the blood. So when we're inside the heart messing around, you don't want clots. Clots are bad news. So we give them basically heparin and uh, monitor that level. It has to meet a certain level for us to be able to intervene. And we call it the bartender position because you want your patient to be comfortable. And we kind of push the envelope a little bit uh, as far as sedation, you know, we, we, you get really good at it. If you, we did 3000 cases per year. So, you know, my count on that was probably four or 500 that I was, that I was a part of. And you get really good at sedation. You can figure out how much the patient can take and um, keep them right at that edge where they're breathing on their own, but they don't remember any of it. So that was probably our primary position. We would also do the recording. And then the really fun part that I enjoyed was scrubbing. And this is where you actually stand beside the physician. You scrub in, so it's sterile technique, and you manipulate the wires, the tubes, the devices. And I think I got to the point where I could probably fix a heart attack without a physician because we were so used to manipulating the equipment. I mean, I'm the one going up and down on balloons. I'm the one manipulating the wires. The doc will get it into the vessel, but all the deployment and stuff, that's done by the scrub tech. Mm -hmm. I really enjoy that. Not all of your cath labs let the nurses scrubs. 
but this one did. That's really cool. Yeah, it was really neat. Thank you for that explanation, by the way. That's really cool. I think you're the first person we've had that has done any type of cath lab experience, at least that anybody has shared. Um, in your experience in the cath lab, did you have any remarkable calls or calls that stood out for you? Or I should say patients, not calls necessarily, but. One of the things that I used to say was that sooner or later, everybody comes through the cath lab. Everybody, you know, young, old, I mean, you know, big, small, tall, short, any size, any race, anything you can think of has been through that cath lab. And we've had some remarkable ones. You know, the, the ones where we really make a difference are the ones I try to focus on. One of the things that nobody likes to talk about is that about 2% of our procedures that we do in the cath lab have a negative outcome. Now, when I say negative, I don't necessarily mean death, but sometimes that means death. And it, it can be really difficult to have a person come in, to come in outpatient. So they literally walk in there and then we zip them up in a body bag a couple hours later. And, the, you know, it's not that we killed them. It's that they were at death's door when they walked in there and nobody knew it. Yeah. So we get in there and we say, I mean, they're, they're days away from dying at home alone. And the reason that they're in there is because they've had some chest pain. They've had some shortness of breath. They've had some sort of symptoms, some sort of indicator warning says, hey, I need to get this looked at. So they come into the doctor's office. He's like, well, we're going to schedule you for a heart cath. So they come in, we do a heart cath and... 2% of them goes bad. So a way to look at that is if we have 100 cases that we do, two of them are going to have severe problems. And I wish it was not like that, but it is. So you asked me about remarkable ones. Um, we've had my pastor come through there uh, when I was a little kid. So he showed up, but we got called in. It was 2 in the morning, and I was a little bit irritated <laughs> Cause I didn't want to go in at two in the morning cause I had to be work at six. So if you, if you get called in at 2 AM, you're going to be up from 2 AM. It takes about four hours to really do a STEMI from the time I leave my house, get in, do the STEMI, get back home. It's about a four hour journey. So we got there too. I was mildly irritated. And sometimes it's just, you know, you get patients that are not a STEMI, but they think they are. And then the ER doc, um, you know, they're not a cardiologist. So so we get them on the table and there's nothing. And we're like, well, why, why are we even here? You know, so that's, yeah. <laughs> that, that it's not very common that that happens, but sometimes that happens. So it was 2 a.m. and we get on the table and this is my pastor from when I'm a little kid. And he doesn't remember me, but I remember him because he made quite a, a big impact on me as a child. And um, I saw the name. It was like, oh man, I know that name. And then I saw the face. I was like, I know this guy. And he was having a major am I? And I was the circulator. So I managed his pain level. And I would like to think that I did a very good job because he was just, you know, he was writhing in pain. And we got him in, we got a stent in, and we fixed him. And later I got to have a meaningful conversation with him. And, and Sam, he was at death's door. He looked like death when he came in. And typically when they look like that, they go ahead and finish the job. You know, it's, it's, mm -hmm. we're not always able to save them. And you know, that look and what I would describe to the listeners is they're kind of gray, but we saved him and he's still alive, still going. That was 10 years ago. Wow. And it's, it's really cool to be a part of something like that. And it's somebody that, you know, and you know, this, I grew up in the same area where I'm, I worked in that cath lab. So 
people, a lot of people that I knew would come through there. Mm -hmm. My wife and I were just talking about that, about how, like, I'm glad that we left our hometown when we were younger because I was just getting into my EMS career and I had started running calls on people that I knew. And that was scary, you know, because there were calls for people that were really sick and you can't fix them. And that's really upsetting. So it was nice to move to Albuquerque where I didn't know anybody, you know, and then after, you know, 10 years here, you do start running on people that, you know, so it is, it, it can be scary. So that's, that's a really neat experience. Um, that is really cool that you got to be part of his experience and that it did have a really good outcome. They don't always have good outcomes. I've had those in there that I knew and they did not make it. Yeah. We do our best and we keep our training up. We keep our equipment calibrated where it's supposed to be. We have some of the best cardiologists and and here's the, the biggest brag that I could make for the cath lab. If I was having a heart attack, I would want to go to my cath lab and have my coworkers work on me. I mean, they're just, they're top notch people. The cardiologists I think are some of the best in the world. And I'm very proud to have been a part of that, you know, and, and making a difference in my community. It is awesome that you have that amount of of pride for that facility. I don't think that's something that's shared very often. Do you feel comfortable sharing any of your your bad stories from the cath lab? Sure, sure. You know, and and I I do like to focus on the positives. I am aware that the negative stories can really have an impact on people, and I've got my fair share of negatives. And I've, I've got a lot of positives, but I've also got a lot of negatives. And I think it's important to be able to talk about depression, anxiety, PTSD, mental health as a whole. And there's this stigma with men in particular that, you know, we have to be stoic. We have to not show emotion. We have to uh, be the rock that everybody anchors to. And you can't have a bad day and you can't let things get to you. And, and I completely disagree with that. I think it's so important to have help when you need it. It's, you know, one of the things my, my dad taught me, my grandmother passed about six months before my dad passed. And I can count on one hand, the amount of times I saw my dad cry and he was crying at my grandmother's funeral. And I was being the typical dude, not crying, not showing emotion. And here's my dad, you know, he was my superhero. And he's there shedding tears, and I'm just looking at him. I guess I'm just looking at him like, what are you doing? And he told me that it's okay to show emotion. And Sam, I took that to heart. <laughs> so, I hope I mean, you I'm going to get emotional during this podcast. I think it's perfectly fine to show emotion. It's okay to show where you're weak. There are areas that I'm very strong in, and there are areas that I'm very weak in. And being able to lean on other people and ask for help is extremely important. So you asked me about difficult cases. There's one in particular that really affected me. You know, there's a thing we call TMB. This patient has a bad case of TMB, which means too many, too many birthdays. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a phrase that we use. (laughs) Well, well, like, like some of these patients that come in, they don't know which direction up is and they're 95 years old and we're doing this procedure on them. And it's not that I don't want to do the procedure, but they're contracted and they, you know, they're just, the body's very stiff. I mean, they can't even straighten out. And the doctor wants to do this procedure for her foot. And I understand she has insurance. I understand we can build for it, but 
why are we doing this on this yeah. patient? We're putting her through misery. It's extremely high risk because she can't follow commands. And not one particular patient. I mean, there's multiple patients like this. And when I'm 95, just let me go. That may be 75. You know, I, I want to be the last person to do my activities of daily living, if you will, on myself. I do not want to be a burden. I don't want to have, to have somebody care for me. Um, if I can't put my own shoes on, then I think it's time for me to go ahead and go. I, I think the quote that you gave me the other day, I'm going to quote you, and I thought it was a good one, was that you wanted, you wanted to be the last one to wipe your own ass. And I think that's a great way of putting it. <laughs> I think a lot of us want to keep our independence. Yeah, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, you know? No, I, I agree with that, you know? So the example that I would give you was not a 95-year-old with a case of TMB. This would be, um, and I remember it like it was yesterday. Guy was 50 years old. So I'm, I'm 42. At the time, I was probably uh, late 30s, 38, maybe. So it was four or five years ago. Um, I was working cath lab, of course. So the dude comes in, and one of our physicians, great doctor, but I don't think the man owned a watch. You know, it was like he had no idea what time it was. He'd schedule a procedure for 2 o'clock and he'd show up at like 3.30 for his 2 o'clock oh, procedure, man. which was really frustrating. Our tables are not super comfortable. And so the, if you think about putting a one-inch mattress on your kitchen table and then laying on that for two hours, flat on your back, not on your side, comfortable, flat on your back, that's kind of what would happen with some of our patients. So on this particular day, the doc was running late, of course. I mean, he was always late, but he was more late than usual. We had this guy in here, he was 50 years old, and I got to spend about an hour and a half keeping him comfortable, uh, you know, as much as I can. We put some pillows under their under their legs, maybe their lower back, adjust their head, whatever we can do to keep them comfortable in this one-inch foam mattress. That's really, I mean, you could take the mattress off and it would be about the same level of comfort. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm talking to this guy for an hour and a half. We talked about his wife, we talked about his kids, he had just moved here from Colorado. He had a home business that he was, you know, he ran it, but he had done pretty well for himself. He had just sold the business and he had just finished up two weeks ago getting the last box of stuff down here to Texas. Got his wife and his kids set up and we talked about his life. We talked about religion. We talked about all these things and we had 90 minutes to spend together. Two total strangers, but I sympathized with the guy. You know what I mean? He, he wasn't too different than me. And at that point, it was about 12 years out. It's a lot less now. It's about eight years from being 50. But I could see kind of a reflection of myself in this guy. And we finally got around to talking about his chest pain. And he'd been having chest pain for six months. Holy Keep in cow. mind, stereotypical dude doesn't want to ask for help, doesn't want to admit that he's hurting, doesn't want to go to the doctor or admit that he's weak or in need of anything, right? And the night before, I guess he had been crawling around on the ground on his hands and knees because his chest hurt so bad. And his 13-year-old daughter was in tears begging him to go to the doctor. So he finally decided to go, and he got on our table, and then we started the procedure. And without going into too much specifics of the actual procedure, there's two parts to any procedure. And you've also got two different types of cardiologists. All of your cardiologists are going to be diagnosticians, meaning that they can access and look at the heart, just looking. 
there is an additional part that requires additional schooling and training and instruction to be an interventionalist. Those guys make a lot of the money. Um, so if you if you need a stent or a balloon, that's done by an interventionalist. So um, if you have a STEMI call, you're absolutely getting an interventionalist. So when we do our procedure, we start it by looking. We don't actually, I would say we don't really touch anything in there. We're still putting a catheter up inside your heart, and shooting some dye in and taking a look, but we're not messing with anything. When we do the interventional part of it, that's where we go in and we start manipulating these vessels. It's a lot more risk involved with the intervention side than it is the diagnostic portion. So we've got access on this guy and his femoral arteries down this groin, um, ran our catheter and our wire up, and we shot the very first look. So to give you an idea of how much dye we use, and this is a radiographic dye, an average case around 100 cc's-ish of dye. Um, if we do more than about 300 on an average size person, we can shut their kidneys down. So you got to be cautious with it. So we look at all these things before we start, of course. So 100 cc's is, is about average for a diagnostic case, a lengthy diagnostic case. Um, the least we would ever do is probably 50 cc's of dye. So we had shot about half of one cc of dye into this guy, and he goes, oh, I'm having that chest pain again. And then he was gone. And when I say gone, I mean no pulse, no breathing, you know, no respirations, no response, nothing. And everybody in this room is a veteran. Uh, I mean, like a, a nursing or a, a medical veteran. So we are a well-oiled team. So we immediately jumped into action. This guy was without a pulse probably five seconds or less before we started compressions. And it's a little bit complicated to do CPR on a cath lab table. But we do it. It's kind of awkward because you can't get directly on top of them. The table's about chest level. So you got to get all these stools and they're still trying to work while we're doing chest compressions. So we immediately started chest compressions on this guy. And I've only seen this a couple of times. We started compressions and the dude woke up. And and I was like, as I was doing the compressions and I'm like, you know, I don't know, 15 or 20 compressions in. And he raises his head up and he goes, ah, not. he was trying to say that hurts. And I know it hurts. So I quit compressions. And, he, and as soon as I stopped the compressions, because I was thinking maybe, you know, his heart started again and, and we're good to go. But nope, as soon as we stopped compressions, right back down. I was like, okay. So we started compressions again and here he comes again. And so he's that waking up while we're doing compressions. And that lasted about two minutes or so. And we couldn't stop because this, you know, if we stop, he'll not make it. So he was conscious for about two minutes of those compressions in complete agony. And of course, my goal at that point is save his life and not control his pain. So we couldn't give him anything for pain. The doc's continuing the procedure and we work him for about an hour. You know, a witness to rest, we, I mean, you know, the medical world, we do as much as we can to the point sometimes of medical futility. And uh, later I'll talk about some other experiences I've had, and, you know, like with kids and stuff, we, sometimes they come in and they're dead before they ever, that before EMS ever gets there, mm -hmm. but we work them like we can save them. So we continue to work this guy. We get other people in there and Sam, it really affected me because we did not save this guy. And we worked him for an hour and um, I mean, felt like I bonded with him a little bit and he was 
we could have been friends. You know, we both recognized that. And to have this guy walk in, spend an hour and a half with me, I was the last person to talk to him. And then I guess you kind of feel like you killed him a little bit. I mean, it's not murder, but because of the actions that we did, he was no longer alive. In reality, he may have lived another week or two, and if he would that, have died at home yeah. if that. I mean, if he was to the point where he was crawling on his hands and knees, it, it doesn't sound like he would have even made it a week would be my guess. Sure. But... Yeah, it's, it was kind of rough, you know, because he looked healthy. And he was, I would say he was 99.9% .9 dead when he walked into our hospital. And just nobody knew it. And we got on that table and we shot that little bit in there and that 0.1% that we had of life left. And it was, it was tough. Um, it caused me to rethink my career. You know, I ended up, I didn't leave the cath lab right then, but I was like, you know, I, I don't know that I want to do this anymore because having a patient come in and then they leave in a body bag, that's rough. That is real rough. You know, having somebody that you feel like you damage can leave an impact on you. So Definitely. I, there was a few other ones in the ER that bothered me quite a bit. Um, I think it adds just a whole other level when you witness the arrest. So, because you do get the opportunity to talk with somebody and, and you know, and then you see it and it changes things, right? Because now you're working a friend almost. And that does make it hard. We had a little, um, a little Mima who, I think she was in her mid-80s and... Her family had called 911 because she was complaining of chest pain. And we get there and we do her vital signs and we do an EKG. And she's like, I really don't want to go. And I tell her, look, at this point, like, you're not really going for you. You're going because your family's worried. You know, something could be going on. Your EKG looks good. Your vital signs look great. Let's just go in and get you checked out. You know, it was more convincing her to go in just because, you know, we can't see everything. And uh, EKG changes are in... I think it was less than 30% of people who are having heart attacks, right? So you're not necessarily always going to see EKG changes. So we convinced her to go and she was like, okay. Got her onto the stretcher, got her out to the ambulance. She waved to her family. They were all packing up the car because they were going to go. Literally, as we're pushing her into the ambulance, she codes. Oh, man. Right in front of her whole family. So her whole family saw her code and... So we jump in the ambulance, and luckily, luckily our supervisor ha had been bored that day, so she just decided to swing by. And so she jumped in and started CPR with us right away, and we transported, and she didn't end up making it either. But that just added this whole other level of trauma, you know, because <laughs> you do. You get the chance to talk, and you're joking with her, and you're joking with the family, and, you know, family's relieved because you've convinced her to go in. Like, could you imagine if we had gotten a refusal on her, and we walked out? And then she codes five seconds after we leave. Like, that's nuts. It's just nuts. How would, how much worse would you have felt walking back in now to grandma dead on the floor, having to do CPR versus, you know, just telling her, hey, let's go get checked out, you know, peace of mind kind of stuff. But still, yeah, we did, we did everything we could. We coded her for the, you know, 10, 15 minute drive to the hospital. And I think they coded her for another half an hour and then called it because she was just in asystole, so... That's rough. There are no changes. Straight acesly. Yeah. So it, I think that adds I think that adds a, another layer of just trauma to, you know, some of the, the patients that we see and the calls that we take. Sorry you had to experience that. Yeah. I learned a lot of things that day. 
<laughs> you know, always, always try to get those Mimas into the ER <laughs> and get yep. them checked out, you know, even if their vitals look good and even if their EKGs look good, uh, you know, it, with uh, older females, especially with chest pain, it's usually going to be atypical, but Agreed. they're not babies in that age, you know, so if something's bothering them, it should be taken more seriously. I agree with that as well. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about being in the ER and having those those cases. Um, so I know like down here in our trauma center, we have separate uh, pediatric ER and then an adult ER. In the ER that you worked in, it doesn't sound like that was the case, or maybe you worked in peds specifically. No, so um, this is a major hospital in North Texas. It was huge ER, 100 plus beds. Um, that is a huge ER. You know, we, it is. We saw... The average was a little over 400 patients per day. Um, we did not have a specific pediatric ER. So everybody had to be up to date on all of our pediatric training, similar to the same certifications that EMS has for all their all their kids, you know, ENPC, um, PALS. So those are the, the standard ones that you'd have to have and a handful of other things, you know, pediatric resuscitation, that kind of stuff. So we would see some pediatric patients. Now, in, in this particular city, there's there's two other major children's hospitals that they can go to. So a lot of times, if it was something, so let's say EMS picked up a sick kid, they wouldn't necessarily bring them to where I was. What we got was the parents bringing us kids. So, I mean, we had, we had a few of them. Uh, I have two different ones that I wanna share about. You know, when I was in school, I had a best friend and we stayed close throughout school. And then when we finished, we both moved to the same city. I didn't see her as much, but I knew I introduced her to her husband, uh, which at that time was boyfriend. And then they got married and then they had kids. She had a baby that was at daycare. I think it was a little less than a year old. And she showed up to pick up her baby from daycare and an ambulance was there. And that ambulance was there for her child. And it would it, was SIDS, so sudden infant death syndrome. They don't really know what caused it, and this is just in general. The The medical community does not know really what causes SIDS. We know that there is a higher incident of it if they are not sleeping on their back, so on the side or on the tummy. Um, there tends to be a higher prevalence of, of SIDS happening, and just one second they're fine, and the next they're dead. So she gets to daycare. Ambulance is there for her kid, and... It didn't make it. I say it. It was a little girl. You know, and, it, and it's not like this is a brand new infant. This is an infant that you've had for almost a year. I mean, bonding is complete at this point. This You are everything to this child, and it is everything to you. And it really hurt my heart to know that my friend was going through this. It was one of the saddest funerals I've ever been to. And it's just, you know, it's like, why? We did everything perfect. We did it as it was supposed to be done. And still, this life was taken. So, fast forward a few years, I finished nursing school. She finished a little bit before me. I managed to stretch nursing school into about six years. <laughs> so, you know, it should take more, but I had I had a lot of fun during part of that thing. Um, and I, I didn't fail. So, I just I had well, a career good. change kind of midway through. And so I never failed anything, but I, I took my sweet time getting through it. So, fast forward, I was working in my hospital there. And we got a call. So I'm seasoned, I guess, by this point, which takes about three years, give or take, as a brand new nurse to become seasoned in whatever field you're working. At that point, I was ER. So I had made it up to a trauma nurse. 
So I was working ER, but there's different levels of ER. So I was up in the trauma base, which is, that was my goal. And we got a call coming in with the SIDS baby. And of course they were working it. And it really just kind of hit home. You know, this was, this was like my friend's baby. So they brought the baby in and, you know, it was, it was dead on the scene is the short of it. They worked it, EMS worked it for a long time. And they brought it to the hospital and we worked it for a long time. And I ended up writing my friend a letter to kind of share the other side of it. You know, that you have a professional disconnect. And if you're in the EMS world, you know what I'm talking about. But when it's, when it's close to home, you have trouble turning it off. And here's this sits baby. It's still fairly fresh in my mind. And I kind of wanted to share with, with my friend the other side of it, because from her perspective, ambulance picked up her baby and then a physician came out an hour or so later and told her that her baby was dead. That was her side of it. And I'm sure there's a little bit more that goes with that, but that's all that she saw. But from our perspective, you know, the CMS picks up this baby that's what, like eight pounds, you know, I mean, you can, it's the size of your two hands together and we're doing, you know, we're making sure our medications are correct. We're making sure our compressions are correct. And sometimes with an older patient, I mean, you, you got to think in the ER where I was, we did CPR roughly six to 10 times every single shift, not day, shift. So, you know, CPR, we, we got a little calloused with it. And, um, it, you know, it's just another day on the job. And sometimes people can get a little crass during it and we'll talk about our weekend or whatever I mean, while we're working on this patient, which is not how it should be, but I tried to maintain, I tried to be very professional with that, but some of my coworkers would, would cut up sometimes because it's the same old thing. You know, this is our job. This is what we do. And with this baby, there was no joking. There was no laughing. There was no, I wouldn't even say there was a dry eye in there. When it's kids, it just changes things because it's not their fault. As an adult, a lot of times we can influence where our life goes, what we do. You put just, you know, you're going skydiving without a parachute. Yeah, that's going to be a problem. That's a decision that you made. But the babies, those are decisions that we as adults make for them. And to have this, this kid's life just cut short and for no reason, it's just, just happens. And we, of course, were unsuccessful. You know, we did everything that we could um, to the point of medical futility. And we wanted to give this child every single chance that we could. And it's, it's rough. So I wrote her a letter and I shared with her all the details and I gave her an opportunity to not read it. I was like, Hey, I want to, you know, I'm going to give this thing to the next page. If you don't want to read it, that's fine. But I wanted to kind of share with you what it was. And so I gave it to her and it really meant the world to her because I'm sure that her child experienced something exactly like that. And to know that we did everything and to talk about the steps, I think hopefully helped provide a little bit of closure for her. And you think about those things on reflection and you find yourself second guessing, you know, did we do everything right? Was there anything we missed? And I believe we did everything perfect, but sometimes it's just not going to work. You know, and there was, there was one other incident with a kid that I wanted to share. We got a call. EMS is bringing this, um, see this kid would have been six or seven old enough to ride a bike. She was there on a service road for a major highway and the, it was a frontage road. So speed limit on the highway was 70, I think. Speed limit on the frontage road was 60. So this neighborhood was uphill from the frontage road. 
Little girl was riding her bicycle. Mom was in the middle of the Pacific Ocean on a cruise, or maybe the Atlantic Ocean, I guess. Grandma was keeping kids. The kid was riding the bike. I don't know if she wasn't able to operate the brakes or the brakes did not function, but it was downhill. And at the end of this hill was the frontage road. So grandma's on foot, kid's on the bike. She's going downhill faster, faster. Grandma's like, stop, 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 stop. Kid either couldn't or didn't know how to stop. Made it all the way to the frontage road where an SUV hit her at 60 miles an hour. So they bring her in. She was wearing a bike helmet. And really the only difference is her face wasn't super banged up. But her body took the brunt of it. So they bring her in and we work her. And this one this one haunted me for a long time. And, it, and even still, I, I still get goosebumps talking about this one. You know, it was pediatric trauma. Those are the absolute worst ones, you know, because then you've... I mean, decisions were made by the adult that put her in this situation to fail. And then you've got an interruption in family dynamics because it's this grandma's fault. Is it dad's fault for not fixing the bike? Is it mom's fault for going on a vacation? And you, you second guess and it can tear families apart and, and make you second guess the decisions that you made as an adult that affected the outcome of this child. And, you know, even us in the ER, we're making decisions to try to save this child if we do everything right. So when we have a trauma activation like that, there's a team. There was probably eight of us in there working on this kiddo. And my position was C-spine. So sometimes with those traumas, we remove the C-collar so we can fully assess. But you have somebody holding C-spine. And we'll do x-rays around it and everything. So I was holding C-spine. And I had a boat of gauze, which is about two inches worth of gauze. And I had about 10 boats there. So I would get a boat or a handful of gauze and I would hold it up to her left ear because every compression that they did, she would lose about five to 10 cc's of blood coming out of her left ear. And I had a trash can right there and there was just this huge amount of blood. And I'm trying, you know, putting a little pressure on it, but I mean, when you're bleeding like that, there's nothing that can be done. So we did allow family at the bedside. So grandma's in there, she's standing right beside me and Hearing her voice talk to that kid was probably the most haunting thing. Begging her to come back, begging her to be okay. And, you know, this, if there's a finger to be pointed, it would be pointed at the grandma for allowing this kid to get into that situation. And I didn't know the family. And of course, the, the child did not make it. And then there had to be that phone call from, I don't even know who made the phone call, but we contacted mom in the middle of the cruise and that's a that's a terrible phone call think about being on vacation and having your name come over the loudspeaker and you've got to go in and talk to them and then you find out your kid's dead and you're on vacation in the middle of the ocean two days from the next destination and then trying to fly home and that'll there's just there's all these aspects of it that were everything about that was terrible and it just haunted me forever at that point i had kids i had a kid of my own seeing a child lose their life and I know everybody in EMS has seen that, but man, that is rough. You bring up a really interesting um, perspective, one that not a lot of people have talked about on the show, and that's kind of our thoughts on the outside. On You talked about the family uh, disconnect and the dysfunction from that. And in the moment, it's easy to think about those things, you know, because I think we're taking them internally as learning lessons, right? Like, if that mom has any other children, she's probably not going to go anywhere on vacation without those kids, right? So 
That is an interesting perspective, and it's something that I haven't really thought about in a long time just because I haven't been in the 911 system. But when you talk about it, it brings it up. And I had a case where grandparents were driving. They had, it was either two or three grandchildren in the back seat, and grandpa fell asleep driving on the freeway. And I think grandma had also fallen asleep, but woke up when she felt the car going over the little ridges on the side of the the road. So she reached over and yanked the wheel and it caused the SUV to flip. And the oldest kid was ejected and then rolled over. And she was the first kid I've ever seen darted where we did a chest dart on her to see um, because that's one of the things you do for trauma patients is you do a chest dart just to see if you can remove any of the air from um, maybe blocking the lungs or the heart from being able to be and it was just straight gastric contents that came out when we darted so you know obvious signs of death Um, we didn't do anything for them but watching the family and everybody else was fine like, I don't think anybody else got transported again. This was probably close to 15 years ago, but... Uh, the child restrained? Um, I don't know. I don't know if she was restrained and it got loose or if she was unrestrained. At the time, I don't really remember. But I remember thinking, like, whose fault is this? Is this grandpa's fault for falling asleep? Is this grandma's fault for freaking out and grabbing the wheel? Is this parent's fault for allowing them being away, you know, and it's just one of those things that you think about that you don't really think about, you know. We don't want to blame people. Things do happen. Accidents happen, and they happen all the time. All day, every day, accidents happen, and unfortunately, sometimes they're fatal. And that sucks for that family, you know. Is that something that's forgiven? Is that something that's now broken that family entirely? You know, and... That's something that those me- those family members take to their death, whether it's not very long after or it's the cause of that death or 20 years from then. So that's unfortunate. That really is unfortunate. I'm sorry that you had those experiences. Are you okay? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. You know, I, I wanted to talk about seeking help and depression and anxiety because I've experienced some of that. It's kind of a taboo topic. And I, I use the term macho men. You know, there there are some men that are more in touch with their emotional side. And emotions are, from a manly perspective, if you will, with air quotes here, it's kind of taboo to show emotion. I, you know, a great example would be my brother. My brother is one of the manliest men I can think of. I've never seen him cry. I've never seen him get anything but angry. And, you know, there's there's nothing like, oh, you hurt my feelings or anything like that. Everything is man about him, and, and uh, I disagree with that. I don't think that that is how it should be. So we talked about that guy that died on the cath lab table right there in front of me, and, and there's a few other stories that are similar to that, but that one was the one that affected me the most. And as a result, to be honest, Sam, it, it, it's hard for me to discuss. It, it doesn't come easy. I do want to clarify that. But the reason I want to bring this up is because I want others to also feel like they can get help. You know, there's there's some, some of these TikTok videos going around or Facebook or what well, I don't really do any of that stuff, but um, I did see a couple of them and there's a video of a guy and they're like, hey, you know, who do you, who do you call when you're at your lowest? And it features about 10 or 15 different guys and their answer is no one. 
we have no resource. We have no body that cares. I didn't really realize that I was depressed and had that severe anxiety until my wife, whom I adore, mentioned to me that she would like to have her happy husband back. And I realized that I needed to do something about it. So um, I did some self-help, you know, got some books. Um, there's a lot of resources on the internet. And almost every facility that you work at has some sort of employee assistance program or an EAP. And through those programs, a lot of time free or discounted counseling sessions are available. Uh, some of the facilities that I worked at, I got to where I would just use all of those counseling sessions. And I would either use them as a marriage counseling or a personal counseling, and I would go and I would take care of them. Um, the average is probably three to six sessions that are free per six months or per year. And it varies per facility. And I took advantage of those. There are some apps that can help you. And I don't necessarily agree that medicating it is the proper way to go. I think that, you know, exercise is good. Um, talking to somebody is good. Sharing your feelings with your significant others is important. And to let somebody in can help. Um, you know, we even went so far. So I wanted to, to fix it. My wife asked me to fix it. I wanted to do the very best that I could to fix it. So, you know, I found all these self-help things. I've reconnected with old friends, um, which is kind of how I fell into flight nursing. I reconnected with an old friend that introduced me and um, helped me get the job. You know, stood up for me and helped introduce me to the right people to land me this position. So I've done that. I've done a few other things. We actually ended up getting a service dog. I've always trained dogs and had uh, a lot to do with them. So I was familiar with the training part of it. Anyway, we jumped through the, the particular hoops and I now have a service dog. He goes everywhere with me, but to work. I don't, I don't take him to work and extremely well-trained. I did it all myself and was able to get some certification. So that helped, um, exercise, spending time outside, talking with your friends. And I have tried to talk to every single friend about it. Um, you know, my situation, I had a friend commit suicide a couple of years ago and think he had some depression and he felt like he couldn't get out and it's really sad because he was a great guy and maybe he just needed to talk to somebody maybe he had these emotions he didn't know how to deal with and you know PTSD is a very real thing and it's it's not just the military veterans that have PTSD I feel like I had a little bit of it with that guy that died with that that kid that I had the that all the blood was coming out of her ear I had nightmares about that for a long time how do you go about breaching those conversations with your friends? If you share, because you talk about connecting and having that those open dialogues with your friends. Do you have those kinds of open dialogues with your friends? Or do you keep it mostly with your spouse? Um, my spouse is, uh, Angie is her name. She's wonderful. She is my best friend. And, you know, she's, I've been married twice now. The first time didn't go so well. And the second time I married for me, and I didn't think I was going to get married again, but I, I found somebody who was perfect for me. And she is a great source of comfort for me. She's very empathetic and kind and resourceful and helps me through all of those things. And, and you'd ask about my friends. So I made it a point to check on the mental health of my friends which is not always easy to do because you call and you're like, hey, dumb ass, you know, <laughs> how are you doing? <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, 
I started it by just asking them, it's like, hey, um, Wes is one of my buddies. And I was like, hey, Wes, you know, if, if you were having trouble, would you tell me? And to be quite honest, Sam, there was, it was a 50-50 split. So I've got about 10 guys that I would consider extremely close friends. And I ask every single one of them the same question because this was right after my friend committed. He didn't commit suicide. He drank himself to death. But the doc said, stop or you're going to die. And he would not stop. So I call that a slow suicide. So called my buddies and I asked him, if you were having trouble, would you tell me? And half of them told me that they would not tell me. And that was kind of hard to hear. You know, it's like, well, you're just going to keep this inside and internalize it. And they weren't, they weren't open to discussion. Still great friends. And they would listen to me, but they didn't want to share. So some of them did share. I encouraged them to seek out some help. And it's, I think it's important to be open, to be willing to share. I mean, like even right now, it's a big thing that I'm sharing this with you. And I know it's on your podcast, but this is hard to talk about, you know, as, as a male, um, this is a taboo topic. No, you can't, you can't show weakness. You can't show that you're having trouble. And I think that that is bullshit. If you don't fix your mental health, it can affect everybody that you love. And I didn't even realize to put it in my wife's words, that I was sad and I didn't know it until she told me. And that's when I started working on it. And not that I'm perfect by any means. I still have my own struggles and trials and tribulations, but we walk through it hand in hand and, and I make it a point. I try to call my buddies about once a week or send them a text message, just check in and see how they're doing. Cause I'm not going to lose another friend to something stupid like that. If I can help it. Yeah, that's great. And that's good that you're opening that dialogue and keeping an open channel for them. Even if they don't necessarily want to share or communicate right now, you're still leaving that open for them. So you had also wanted to talk a little bit about some other health issues, specifically colorectal cancer. Yes. Um, this is also hard for me to talk about because, you know, it's another area of weakness, but I had some, some booty problems. And, uh, booty the, problems. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to the doctor with my booty problems and it was an internal hemorrhoid, which is, it's kind of weird to talk about that, but that's what it was. And it was causing some bleeding and some pain, like quite a bit of pain actually. So I went to the doc and, uh, on a side note, kind of as a joke, if you, if you get a gastroenterologist, just look at the size of their fingers and make sure that you get a doc that has slender fingers. And I'm just going to leave that. You know, there. I don't need, I don't need a proctologist. We get our shit checked once a year as females. So I already know that line, bro. <laughs> it's not just you guys that are suffering with well, doctors with fat fingers. Okay. Yeah, my, <laughs> my, my GI doc had enormous fingers, but anyway. <laughs> Um, so I was having this problem and he recommended that I get a colonoscopy at the time. I think I was 40, 39 or 40 when that happened. And the recommendation right now is 50 and they're trying to bump it up to 45. So colorectal cancer is easily preventable. It is something that most times has no symptoms until it has a lot of symptoms and then it can be very short. Um, uh, a high-profile person would be like Chadwick Boseman. He played the Black Panther in the Marvel movies. He was there, and then, Degum, he was gone. And that's what he died from. And I don't know how old he was, but, of course, he was super fit, super wealthy, and they could not save him. You know, this guy, if there was a treatment available to fix that, I feel like he did well enough with the Marvel movies that he could have done it. And there's a handful of others, but he's probably the highest profile that I could think of 
So my own personal story, I went in for the procedure. It went fine. Um, after it finished and after I recovered from the propofol, which is amazing, by the way, 45 minutes passed like two seconds. <laughs> two <laughs> seconds is what it felt like for me. Like, all right, count backwards. And I was like, 10. <laughs> Done. So, yeah, I didn't even make it to nine. So I had a discussion with the doc about what he found in there, and there were some polyps. And I had two medium polyps and one large polyps. And he told me that if I'd have waited until I was 45 to get my my colonoscopy, that that would have been full-blown colorectal cancer. And that's pretty scary to think about. That is so scary. I recommend that at the age of 40, everybody get checked out. And I know it's kind of, it can be a pricey procedure depending on your insurance. Um, but if you can work it in, I feel like it can be really beneficial. You know, had, had they caught Chadwick Bozeman's early, he probably would still be here. It's super easy to fix at a small level. And I'm sure he didn't go in until it was emanating severe symptoms. So what my doc told me is I got lucky with the hemorrhoid. And because the hemorrhoid had prompted to have a colonoscopy, he went in and found this thing and was able to easily remove it in a day procedure. And think about, I mean, you've been in the hospital system and you, you've seen patients getting treatment for cancer and it is awful. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. So um, after that, I got involved in some awareness and is it okay for me to put a plug in? Yes, to please do. a project that I'm part of. So um, there was a young lady that we all knew that had colorectal cancer, and she passed and left a couple of little babies at home and her job. I mean, she's in her 30s, I think, when that happened. And it kind of rocked everybody's socks off. So the name of the foundation is the Amanda Mann Project, M-A-N-N, Amanda Mann Project. And you can easily find it online. Uh, my friend runs it. She is a nurse, and they raise a lot of money and awareness for this disease. And, um, you know, the, the main thing is raising awareness about it so people are aware and can hopefully help prevent other people from having the butt cancer. It's bad. You do not want that. So we've we've been involved with that. There's a lot of different events that they hold, and of course you can donate, and they, they do a lot of stuff. They do something about once every two months or some sort of fundraiser or event, and you can go online and find us. That's really cool. Thank you for sharing that story. I know that's hard. Yeah, it's not super fun to talk about. Yeah, I know. It's never fun when we're talking about our butts, you know, but... In all reality, people should be getting checked uh, a lot earlier than they are getting checked. I agree. I agree. I recommend any male that's 40 or older to get it checked. Yeah, we have we have some colorectal problems in my family as well. So they're saying, you know, in the 30s to, to be getting checked, which it's that time, you know, <laughs> for me. I think the the medical system is so broken though you know you discussed about how it could be a pricey procedure and it's it's no joke even if you have insurance you know it's costing you a lot of money and i would really like to see more programs out there you discussed your friend's project and maybe i can reach out to her and and talk a little bit more with her about it but i i think i would like to see more help for um middle class families or poorer families who you know, one procedure or one diagnosis can just 
knock out your savings. You know what I mean? Um, my mother-in-law this last year was diagnosed with cancer and that, that rocked us all. And I mean, financially, it was a big hit. And there's not a lot of help for middle-class families. And even with insurance, you're still paying your max out-of-pocket's 5000 you know, that's not chump change. That's a, that's a big no, chunk. It's not. And that can knock out a lot, especially if if you're only living on one income, you know, and, and a lot of middle class families are living on one income so that, you know, the parents can be parents or whatever they got to do. So I'll reach out to your friend and see if we can figure something out and see if she's open to anything like that. Absolutely. Um, but I appreciate you sharing that story. And I'm glad that your butt is okay. Me too, <laughs> <laughs> and that you're good to fly. <laughs> um, do you have any stories that you're, you know, fond of or particularly proud of? So we can kind of end on a higher note. Yeah. So I've got a couple of general ones that I want to share. And then I want to end with one that was a stroke and it had a negative outcome, but the difference staff can make is what I want to talk about. Sure. Um, as far as I am aware, the death rate in the world is 100%. Everybody eventually passes and we do what we can to mitigate those circumstances. And if you look at the average age of death, it has gone up significantly in the last century. I mean, even right now, you know, we're, we're talking about politicians that are in their seventies and eighties and the fact that they're able to continue being alive and being a productive member of society and even running the country is incredible. Um, so everybody dies is, is the point that I, that I want to make. Um, you know, and we, we do what we can to slow down that process or help that process or ease that process. So I'm going to refer back to the cath lab to directly answer your question. Some of the, the cool things that we've done, we've had somebody come in that can barely walk, not because they're huge, not because they're super old. It's because they've got some cardiac insufficiencies. So they've got some sort of blockage. They've got some sort of issue with their heart that doesn't work well. And I'm talking, they can't get up from their armchair and walk to the mailbox that's maybe 50 yards away. So they come in and through technology, through training, through proper technique and competence, we're able to go in, find the blockage, fix it. And we're not saving lives here. What we are doing 90% of what we do in the cath lab is not saving lives. It is increasing their, their quality of life. You know, you go from not being able to walk to the mailbox and all of a sudden after you have this procedure and we open up whatever blockage it is and put you on the proper medication, now you can walk around in the neighborhood and you can go to your kids' games and you can go visit your grandkids or your great grandkids or whenever it is. You can walk without pain in your legs. You can have circulation that helps this wound on your leg heal. And it's really cool to be a part of that. You know, I wish the cost was not a factor because a lot of the procedures that we do are super expensive, but dang, you got a problem and we come in and we fix it and we make your life better. That's a cool thing to be a part of. 10% was heart attacks and saving lives. 90% was making your life better. Um, so you wanted to end on a high note, and I think it was a high note. The lady did pass was the short of it, but um, I want to give a little more background to it. So this lady came in. She was about my mom's age at the time, um, late 60s. She was sick. She was unresponsive. 
and a little more backstory. Once the family got there, they had gone to dinner with grandma. They dropped grandma off at home and then they went home. And I think their house was about 10 minutes away, if I remember correctly. And she got home, the daughter did. The daughter's like, I don't know, 50 years old or something. So, you know, they're, they're established adults. So she called mom and said, hey mom, I'm home. But mom didn't answer. I guess that was their standard was they, they called each other when they got home. So mom didn't answer. She waited 10 minutes, called again. Mom still didn't answer. She's like, well, I'm going back. So she went back to mom's house and found her on the floor, unresponsive, still alive, but unresponsive. And she'd had a massive hemorrhagic stroke. And, you know, hemorrhagic ones are, you can't do a whole lot for those. The ones that have a clot, we can do stuff with that. But the hemorrhagic ones, the, the brain is extremely sensitive. And when you put stuff besides brain inside your skull, it will squish the brain like a sponge squeezing out water and it does not come back. And that's what happened with this lady, massive hemorrhagic stroke and her fun her functioning was declining even as she was in the ER. Now, here's where we end on a higher note. Yes, this lady was on her way out, but I want you to think about her, her last evening. So she went to dinner with her family she was never a burden. They never had to see her sick. She came into the hospital and the doc that we had was one that was, he was just one of those super cool dudes. Like he could tell you, you know, you're going to die in five minutes and you would thank him for saying it because he had such a way with people. He was just super smooth, you know, and, and I remember he was talking to the family and, and um, I knew she was crashing. She was in the middle of crashing. Came in okay, but then started crashing. He was talking to the family and he was like, you know, you need to tell us how much you want to do here. And as he's calmly talking to them, he reaches over and starts compressions like mid-conversation and continued to talk while we're doing compressions because this lady is crashing and I'm looking at him and, you know, he wasn't looking at me, but he was talking to him and it's just kind of their mouth sort of fell open, like, are we doing compressions? And she was one of those patients that kind of, you know, she she would leave and come back and leave and come back as far as vital signs. And we asked the family, you know, what, what do you want us to do? And as the family's there, we are kind, we are compassionate, we show empathy. And there was a family member that was coming from Austin, and that was about four hours from where we were. And we were able to keep this lady alive long enough that all of the family could be at her side when she passed. And you could tell, like, there's, this, it still makes me emotional thinking about this, but I was the primary nurse on it. And not that I'm great or anything like that, but I know that me and that doctor made a huge difference in how that lady died. And, and I think that's one of the most worthy goals that you can shoot for is a good death. And this lady had a good death. Surrounded by her family, we were able to keep her alive until that other person got there from Austin and she she passed with everybody at the bedside. There was no six months of being in the hospital. There was no million dollars worth of hospital bills. Um, you know, they went to dinner with her and, and four hours later, she was gone. And it was a multi-step process from multiple departments to get her to that point. I mean, she'd been transported by EMS, um, you know, so they had a hand in it. Triage had a hand in it. And then the ER nurse and the doctor had a hand in it. And it was one of the cleanest, smoothest, kindest deaths that I witnessed in my career. There was no chaos. There was no crazy. Um, I remember at the end of it, this was, you know, my dad passed and all that. And I was still trying to figure out my emotions. And I cried with the family. 
you know, and I didn't get to talk to the lady, the, excuse me, the, the one that passed, I did not, she was never conscious while she was there, but I was able, I had four hours that I spent with the family and it was a one-on-one -on -one situation and I was able to bond with them a little bit and talk with them and ease their suffering and I would like to think that they were proud of the way that she passed uh, and that on reflection they would think that we, meaning the medical system, did a good job with her parents and and I was I was very proud of that and I think I wouldn't mind going the way that lady went. So what we do we being the medical system, what we do really matters and it can really affect the outcomes, the consideration, the, the thought process and the healing process. You know, when there's, when there's grief, it's tough and having somebody that genuinely cares while still providing that excellent medical treatment, I think is, is super important. That's why I'm so proud of, of being part of the flight system. You know, I get to work with awesome people like yourself. Um, you know, and I, I have a couple of things that I wanted to say about you and what you're doing here, if that's okay. I've got I got five things I want to list here. Oh, sure. You got a piece of paper there? <laughs> yeah, I got a little piece of paper. I made some notes. I love it. I so, love it. Here's my high note to, to go out on. Five things about Sam. This is a, the first one's a two-parter. You are you're very kind and welcoming. And if they if the listeners hadn't figured it out, I I've been able to work with you and I've gotten to know you over the past uh, I don't know, half a year or so. You're very kind and welcoming. Matter of fact, you helped train me some um, with flights. And never at any point did I feel like you were judgmental or angry or not happy that I was there. You helped me through and made me feel like part of the team right from the, right from the bat. So that's, that's one. very sweet of you. Two, you're very empathetic. I've gotten the opportunity to see you interact with patients. And, you know, some of our patients are super easy and some are not. And even with the difficult patients, you were still empathetic to them. That's hard to find. It's not always a quality that everybody has. Third thing, you're always willing to help. Uh, multiple times landed in an airplane, and here comes Sam out there to bring the ambulance over, help move the patient. You always come out with a smile and a, and a happy attitude, and that's spectacular. Fourth thing, you're not afraid to try something new. This podcast is hard. So... Yeah, we've been talking an hour and a half, and that's part of it, but that is probably a very small portion of what you and your team do to produce this. There's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff that people don't think about, and you do all this while you're working full-time. So, I mean, you work you work about as many hours as I do, and it's a bunch. It's well over 40. So, <laughs> well over you know, 40. To do that. Yeah, well over. So to produce a high-quality podcast like this while working full-time, it says something about your character and who you are as a person. Those are really two things. Um, so not afraid to try something new and then the podcast. So that's four and five. And I'm very proud of you and what you've accomplished here. And, I'm, you know, I'm very pleased and, and happy to be able to be on here and share my stories. And hopefully, you know, my, my whole goal behind being here is to help you and your podcast and also hopefully raise some awareness about a couple of issues that I brought up. And maybe, maybe one person might seek out some help for one of those issues. And if, if one person does that, I would call that a win. I agree. And I appreciate you so much in saying all those really nice things. I 
couldn't be here without the team that I have. And my team is, you know, my family, my wife and my brother-in-law. And could not do this without them. So thank you. You're welcome. You know, I think it's really cool. I've, I've listened to, I haven't listened to every single one of them because, you know, I'm full-time dad and full-time working and got some small business on the side. I haven't listened to all of them, but I've listened to a bunch of them. And I think it's awesome that people are able to come on here and share their stories. And I feel like we're kind of building a community of listeners and people. And I know several of the people that have been on your podcast and it's, it's cool. They've got a bunch of stories and it's not, it's not that we're on here to talk about how great we are. It's on here so that we can help and build each other up. And the work that you're doing here is, is important. It is needed. I feel like it's a gap in the industry and, and we talk about some tough issues while we're on here and that's important. I agree. And I think you can make a difference with people and, and you're doing it and you're, you're following your dream and I'm a, I'm proud to be a part of it. And I'm proud to have I'm you so on, I'm so proud man. of you and it's really cool. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm super proud that you came on and you, despite your fear, were able to share those, those stories. And I think it's easy for us to sit on the side and, you know, hear stories and think, well, that's just meh, whatever. You know what I mean? But it is hard for people to come on here and share stories. It's hard for me to share some of the stories that I've shared, but I find it very cathartic. And I have said that in the last few episodes, this is, it may sound selfish, but this is good for me. <laughs> and I hope that it's as good for other people as it has been for me. Well, Brett, thank you so much for sharing so much of your time with us today. I appreciate you coming out and and for saying yes when I asked you if you had any interest in being on the podcast. It's uh, There's been some really good stories here and I, I think some really good lessons learned. And uh, again, more resources. You know, that's a, that's a big part of what I'm doing is, is gathering resources for people to use. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed sharing what I, what I know and what I think. That's awesome. Do you have any questions or anything else that you want to throw in before we hang up? Just, you know, the, the final plug for the mental health thing um, to anybody that would listen, don't be afraid to open up. It's, it's not going to bite you or sting you like you think it will. You know, I know it's, I know it's hard to share and I know it's hard to show that weak area of you, but it'll make you a better person. And it will help you have some of that healing process. And that's what I needed. I needed to heal. And not there yet, but getting close. And that's that's through the support. People like yourself, people like my wife, my friends, my family, my counselor. And it takes some guts to seek out that help. But take the step and you won't be sorry. I agree 100%. <laughs> Brett, thank you again so much for coming out. I appreciate it. And I hope you enjoy your vacation. Thank you, Sam. Yeah, buddy, Appreciate you. you. Have a good day, okay? You too. Thank you for listening. Before we wrap up, we have a few important announcements to share with you. Firstly, we're excited to announce the launch of our brand new 911 Nonsense Facebook group page. It's a community where everyone can go to connect, share ideas, discuss topics from the show, and get all of the most recent updates about the podcast. We'd love to have you join us and be part of the conversation. Next, we want to ask you to rate and review our podcast on your preferred platform. Your feedback means the world to us and helps us reach a wider audience. By rating and reviewing the show, you'll be supporting us in a big way and helping others discover 911 nonsense. 
If you enjoy what we do and would like to support the podcast even further, we have a few options available. You can visit samspursuit.com to find the links to our 911 Nonsense merch page and our recently released Noon Gear page. Every contribution, no matter the size, goes a long way in helping us continue to better the podcast. We know that not everyone is comfortable being on the podcast, but we still want to hear your stories and experiences. If you have a compelling story and would like to share it to be read by me in a future episode, please reach out to us via email at 911nonsense at gmail.com or through our website's contact section. If you choose to be anonymous, we'll make sure to respect your privacy while sharing your story in a way that resonates with our audience. Thank you again for tuning in. We truly appreciate your support and look forward to bringing you more engaging content in the future. See you next week.